0: My guest is Dr. May-Wan Ho. She's a biochemist and biophysicist who's become one of the world's most sought-after public speakers, prolific author, 400 publications, in scientific and popular magazines. She has published many books, including her very important study, Genetic Engineering, Dream or Nightmare, and her classic text, The Physics of Orgasms." Uh, organisms. sorry. Dr. Ho has also written extensively about AIDS and the global problems associated with the genetic modification of rice and Unraveling AIDS in Rice is Life. Besides her distinguished career as a scientist, she is also a major critic of neo-Darwinian thought and genetic engineering. And currently she is the co-founder and director of the Institute of Science and Society and, uh, in London. It's a not-for-profit organization. Nice to have you with us today. Hi. I would like, if you would please, to take your time. And there are two main topics I would like for you to discuss. First, there is current research that has been, to my concern, about Morgellons and how it may be tied to genetically modified foods. And second, listeners may not be fully appreciating the complications and ambiguities around medical genetics in general. So what does it mean when we see more and more research trying to identify a genetic cause for disease or genetics turning symptomatic conditions into a disease model, such as obesity? Now you and I both know that obesity is not due to genes. We also know that the Nazis based their entire racial hygiene program, their entire euphanasia program upon killing over 300,000 people in mental institutions upon genetics. In fact, one of the leading proponents of genetic causes of schizophrenia came from Nazi Germany, was a part of the Holocaust creation and ended up a Columbia Presbyterian and the entire field of uh, brain behavioral abnormalities in children is based upon her original thoughts of, oh, it's in the genes, and it creates a biochemical modality from the genes. She has never been able, nor anyone else has ever been able, to prove that that is the case. It has not stopped them from having 100% of the funding, all the authority and the rights even in courts to dictate a mental condition based upon their being an expert on the genetic proclivities, even within families of schizophrenia, when there is no such thing. So I see this as just a very challenging area. I'm going to keep quiet now and allow you to roll out your ideas in depth.
1: Well, you certainly picked very big topics, and I'm I'm not sure I can actually uh, deal with both of them. in in the time available but let me start with the simple one the Morgellons disease and the genetic engineering connection now I'm one of the scientists a group of scientists who had warned back in 1998 that um, genetic engineering is very dangerous it could actually create new diseases And we have to then, I was already, we were already asking for public inquiry as to whether the start of genetic engineering since the mid-1970s and maybe early 70s, uh, 1970s um, was actually, had actually been increasing the incidence of new disease pathogens arising new viruses and bacteria and spreading antibiotic resistance genes. And uh, this is due to a process of horizontal gene transfer, which means that this genetic material, they don't actually stay in the organism. In one species, they can jump species, and then they can uh, swap and change. And if you do that, you know, that is the main route to creating new pathogens, new disease-causing agents. So now, um, recently, well, at the beginning of this year, the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control in the United States, suddenly called uh, an inquiry into Morgallon's disease. And this is after years of denial and dismissal Saying that these people don't actually suffer from this disease because um, it, it's, it, it's imaginary, and um, in fact, they now um, admit that in this particular disease, these patients have skin lesions, and uh, they they experience very uncomfortable feelings like crawling things. Calling uh, inside, fibers sticking out, painful, obviously, and um, you know, the, it's 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 really a horrible disease, and um, nobody knew what was um, what was uh, the the cause of it until this um, professor Satovsky at um, Stony Brook University, New York. You might speak to him later, um, he actually looked at these fibers coming out of these patients and he identified that they genetic material from agrobacterium. Now, this agrobacterium is a soil bacterium. It lives in the soil and it's one of the major bacterium that has been uh, pressed into the surface of genetic engineering, which means that it has been modified to smuggle genes into different cells and organisms to make genetically modified organisms, genetic-engineered organisms. And it, this bacterium actually causes crown gall disease. A kind of cancer in plants. And by disarming it, removing the disease genes, they hope, the genetic engineers hope, that then you can safely use this bacterium to transfer genes into cells. Therefore, you end up with genetically modified soybeans, you know, cotton, maize, everything, you know? That's how it all started. Now, unfortunately, um, you know, identifying this, this uh, genetic material in these patients raises a number of questions uh, in my mind and in other people's minds as well, because there is this circumstantial evidence which suggests that genetic engineering may have something to do with this emergence of this new epidemic which is called Morgellons disease. I think at last count there were like uh, in a website that registers these um, people there's something like over 12,000 people from all around the world and the United States is a hot spot in California, Texas and Florida. Now these are places where you know, genetic engineering began. You know, the United States was the first to start genetic engineering. And, um, you know, these people all, one of the factor, risk factor is contact with soil, dirt, and so on. So that fits. And um, there's also the same uh, professor, Sitovsky also discovered a few years ago that this agrobacterium, you know, the genetic engineers thought, well, it only works on plants. It's safe for animals. That's what they assume, without actually doing any research. But uh, the professor did some research and showed that it actually attacks human cells. And it could actually carry genes into human cells. So, another piece of evidence. Okay. The um, bacterium, after it's been used to um, make genetically modified organisms, say say, tomato or raspberry or whatever, you know, they just try it on everything. Then you grow these, um, you know, genetically modified plantlets up in the tissue culture. And um, in order to make them safe, you um, get rid of this bacterium because, you know, you have to use the bacterium, and the, the procedure depends on the bacterium transferring its genetic material called a T1 plasmid, you know, for the T-DNA. It's a piece of its DNA carried loose in its cell, and it's been modified to carry genes. And so this little piece of DNA with the help of the bacterium gets into the plant cells and then this um, foreign genes together with antibiotic resistance marker genes is then inserted into the organism's genome. If it is a tomato, it's a tomato genome. If it's a maize, it's a maize genome. Okay, but after that, you've got to get rid of this um, bacterium and its vector. Otherwise, you know, if it remains around, it could go on transferring genes. It could go on transferring these foreign genes into other agrobacterium and other bacteria as well. So what happens? In the UK, in the 1990s already... We discovered a paper where they report that, you know what, it's very difficult to get rid of these bacteria from the, trans, from the transgenic tissues, from the tra- transgenic uh, organisms. And as far as we know, this issue was never solved. And the scientists were already saying, look, this is dangerous because we don't know what kind of, um, you know, viruses and new bacteria we can get if these, um, if these uh, agrobacterium and the vector remains in the transgenic plants? And at that time they didn't know that agrobacterium could even attack animal cells. And so that issue was kind of buried and kept quiet. Now. Now, then, another piece of evidence, and that is that other scientists in the um, in New Zealand have pointed out that, as a matter of fact, you think the Aquabacterium is so special that its uh, signals, genetic signals for transferring genes and so on, well, they are not special at all they can be substituted by similar signals in other bacteria. They are very similar. So as you can imagine, you know, you let loose these foreign genes into the environment, grow lots and lots of transgenic crops, and then you let loose this genetically modified agrobacterium that help to you know facilitate gene swapping you know you can have like gene swapping till you drop till you you know come up with some um, new pathogens and basically that's the kind of strong circumstantial evidence we have at the moment and um, you know my colleague and I professor Joe Cummins and I we've written this um, report and we have sent it to the CDC And we we demanded that they should investigate this link as a matter of urgency, if only to rule it out. Because, you know, so what they should be doing is look at all the Morgallus patients carefully and see if they can identify, you know, common genes, agrobacterium genes, especially those that are used in genetic engineering and then work out a diagnostic test for, for this uh, disease, basically, and at the same time work out a stringent test to see, to make sure that all the genetically modified organisms released into the environment or further release into the environment should be free from agrobacterium because even though they don't come out in culture they can be like they can lie dormant and you know they will come out once you put them into the soil and that's the situation we have so is that clear about morgellan's disease
0: yes it is it's very clear but it still does not address two issues that are issues of ethics. Yes. Clearly and unequivocally, this could not have occurred without someone at the governmental levels, at our National, um, national Academy of Sciences, at the institutions responsible for seeing that these issues are monitored, FDA. And not a yes, single one of these government agencies us have that come FDA forward. It's safe. Yeah, well, no one has done that, and I cannot believe for one second that they do not have suspicions or have some evidence to the contrary.
1: Well, they should have because we keep telling them. We actually brought this to the attention of our government regulators, and we never really received a, a, a satisfactory reply to our questions.
0: But but what that tells me is that there is malice aforethought. There's a certain uh, intent to suppress this information from getting out, and then I have to look at who are the real powers in the administration that would allow... did
1: that, uh, Gary, or else, you know, somebody is not very bright, and somebody is saying, let's dismiss these people because they aren't really genetic engineers, and it's very important to get genetic engineering going because it, a lot of money is involved and we can't let these people stand in the way.
0: Well, you realize that if they have to acknowledge that Morgellons is due to their genetic engineering screw-up,
1: well, that, we, that, that we will throw actually, a bright well, light. Well, let me correct you there because we don't actually have the really definitive evidence yet because at the moment, as I uh, emphasize, there is strong circumstantial evidence and therefore, I feel that, you know, uh, Joe and I feel that they should carry out the the um, investigations that we have suggested.
0: I would but agree with that. Uh, that is a responsible way. But, uh, Dr. Yes. Ho, is it not also true that for over 100 years, the tobacco industry, by hiring scientists and lobbyists and legislators like Strom Thurmond and others and Jesse Helms, were able to prevent virtually any limitation in the marketing of cigarettes, even though that the insiders, including the FDA, knew that it was addictive, and yet there were over 100,000 studies that were brought forward, and no matter what study was brought forward, they would say, well, we need another study. And right. be, be very careful, right. or you'll that's get caught that, in that same they juggernaut.
1: We, they will keep saying we need further research, but they will never support the real further research. You will find, that as we have found, that Every time they come close to discovering something dangerous, they close it down.
0: What does that tell you?
1: I don't know. You know, I don't like to know. This is why um, I feel I'm very passionate that we should get things out there so it is transparent because not everybody in the government takes the same view and we've got to help these people who are trying to do their job, do their real job. We have to put pressure on to help, you know, the good guys do their job.
0: All right, Well, and I think you're doing excellent at your efforts, and I commend you and your colleague for bringing this to our attention. I read your your articles, the scientific articles you wrote as well. Have you thought about uh, trying to get this published by the National Academy of Sciences?
1: Well, you know, Joe and I have uh, submitted, I mean, dozens of papers to the USDA, and they have ignored us every time, and they even um, go to the extent of insulting us and calling us Marxists, basically. And uh, we've complained about that, but we haven't actually had any reply from them at all. Well, first off, that's so a
0: very unscientific way for them to reply exactly, to Exactly. They,
1: they make at hominem, hominem arguments, basically. And um, I think that uh, it's it's very unscientific uh, we don't actually call them names um we're actually very patient we we just say well you know if you've got scientific arguments against them please let us know please uh, pose it in a form that the public can understand because then you have nowhere to hide basically that's the challenge we have posed all our regulators around the world, in the U.K., in the U.S., everywhere.
0: But it's only through power that they're able to hide, because power has one of its proclivities is being able to not be accountable.
1: Well, you know, in, the, in, the, uh, in Europe, where the information gets around much more, um, we are still more or less keeping GMOs at bay. And I think that, unfortunately, the United States, it's very big. And maybe, you know, it's kind of difficult for the information to get around in a way that matters. And uh, obviously, you know, you're doing your best.
0: Well, but it's not enough at this point, because we have to break through... Yeah. to the larger population. It's only when you reach the larger population, the crossover audience, that yeah. you'll see things happen. I and <clears throat> I have true. some I have some experience in this as m- m- messages that had historically been relegated to just that what were considered the health nuts. Once I was on ABC, suddenly it was mainstream. And then ABC network for twelve years it was mainstream. And then suddenly talking about eating fiber or having a healthier diet or exercising we're no longer uh, define, defining you as a nut job exactly. so until exactly. such time Let's that messages the are translated to other segments of the population we stay we stay limited Now my last yeah. question for you is would you please give us your views your feelings your uh, your, your no. perception well, about
1: you know, genetically
0: modified genetic modification and its possible implications and other problems? in our food production.
1: Well, You want to talk about that, or you want to talk about the uh, the, the question you posed at the beginning?
0: Uh, both.
1: Okay. Well, you know, what? Um, we're among a group of scientists who have been calling for a ban on genetic engineered crops and products, so GMOs altogether, on the environmental releases. And because the evidence is so good that... You can achieve everything you want to achieve and haven't been able to achieve with genetic engineering, with just uh, conventional breeding and, um, you know, do your uh, agriculture properly, sustainable agriculture of all kinds. If you do it properly, you you know, um, composting, green manure, and so on can increase food yield by 30% Thirty percent compared to chemical fertilisers. and that's directly by experimental comparison in recently in um, in Ethiopia. So definitely we do not need GM food at all, and this is all the more important because they are now using this uh, food and fuel crisis to say, oh, we need GM crops to increase yield because we need both fuel and food. Well, that's nonsense because they haven't increased yield. Quite the contrary, they have been decreasing yield, increasing pesticide use, increasing herbicide use to unbelievable extents. And, you know, it's all lies, basically. And so I think we don't have time and resources to waste so please, please, give up on GMOs and uh, start sustainable, organic, localized food systems, localized agriculture. So that's the future of GMOs. And what I want to say about genetic, genetics? Yes, this is a very important area. And I think the, you know, when uh, Watson. Um, was seeking funding for um, the Human Genome Project, he said, we're going to create the blueprint of how to create a human being. We're going to find the blueprint of how to create a human being. And, of course, he was taking a very genetic determinist line, and people fell for it. But the best thing that came out of the Human Genome Project is to just puncture this myth once and for all. We now know that, you know, in molecular genetics, Lamarck, what people call Lamarck, Lamarckism, you know, the inheritance of, of quiet, acquired characters and so on, as opposed to neo-Darwinism, that you know, you're born with your genes and everything is determined from birth. You know, Lamarck is actually right especially at the molecular level. Your genes can be marked and changed by environmental influences and they can be passed on to the next generation. And so the environment has a very large effect on your health and it can also not only affect you but can affect the next generation. So all this Thing about genetic engineering uh, crops, genetic engineering humans, oh yes it has begun in fact the UK has just passed a law that would allow it unfortunately uh, and that's the, the route that we really do not want to go down uh, you were quite right to remind us to this, uh, of this um, you know, eugenics nightmare that we've been through. And we certainly do not want a repeat of that.
0: Well, I appreciate you sharing your insights. I do know that when I speak with colleagues and people in Europe, South America, they are far more aware of the problems with genetic engineering than the average American. And I just am hopeful that your message will get out And um, I intend in the next 12 months to begin a documentary on genetic engineering of foods. And uh, we'll reach out to you you. at that time. Good Uh, for you. And let me send you I'm going to send you four or five of my other documentaries just to give you an idea of what we're doing in other areas. And in many cases, these documentaries become the tools necessary to get the average person. Involved because and they see the story, they understand the story, it, it lays itself out. And then, you know, right now we have a massive movement to challenge mandatory vaccination. I do not yes. oppose vaccine per se, I oppose it being mandatory.
1: I, I think also you're right. I, I also... A lot of these vaccines are very dangerous.
0: They are dangerous, but you know that everyone in our government, uh, the National Academy of Pediatrics, that receives millions of dollars from the vaccine manufacturers, over 50% of all the people sitting at the FDA and the CDC on their vaccine advisory schedule boards are all involved in making money from the vaccine manufacturers. And the vaccine manufacturers have never had, never once, a double-blind, placebo-controlled study with long-term monitoring to see whether or not there is efficacy and safety, and if so, in which individuals. Now, at this very time, they had this big to-do in the paper about, oh, you know, there's a measles outbreak and some kids that haven't been vaccinated. But they completely avoided the idea that there was measles in kids that had their full vaccines. And in some cases, they had a very violent form of uh, measles that was extremely uh, problematic to the child's health. So it's interesting what people choose to use in any argument, as I am a person that believes... when
1: When I was young, when I was a child, measles was a very mild disease, and we just ignored it. We just had it, and that was it. We never vaccinated against it. You see, I go back quite far.
0: Well, no, you don't go back that far. You go back to your baby boomer, and as such, our entire generation, as am I, our entire generation only had two, three vaccines, and today they can have as many as 15 in one day. In fact, they're trying to mandate to have 21 in one day, and we have an enormous amount of evidence to challenge that you cannot, no human being in America can say to a child, I guarantee that you will not become sick, and I guarantee you will be protected. Now, until such time that the science will be so certain that you can guarantee a given child immunity from disease and safety from side effects, then you cannot say, by extension, that all vaccines are both safe and effective. It is irresponsible to do so
1: it is irresponsible to push vaccination instead of pushing you know primary health you see if you have if you have a a good healthy state with good healthy innate immunity that is your best protection against all diseases known and unknown and that you know there is almost a consensus on this now it's no longer it's no longer like um
0: you know, a, a, a French idea. You're absolutely correct. And it's, it again, in all major efforts for change, there is the initial uh, challenge to the existing paradigm. And the defenders of a paradigm know that they risk billions of dollars in profits and sales. They re, re also uh, could have liability. If they had information that was shown to be counter what the public knew or the government knew. For example, if they knew that a vaccine they were giving was not effective or dangerous, and they went ahead and allowed that to be brought out, then they could then justifiably be sued because they would no longer be covered under the Vaccine uh, Injury Act where you're not allowed to sue the manufacturer. That only is if the manufacturer's in adherence with good proper manufacturing and is under FDA compliance for the studies they've done. If you've lied to the FDA, and we found repeatedly, companies have lied to the FDA. They yes. have. They have we given misinformation on drugs. We have the
1: same problem here drugs.
0: in the UK. We Pardon have me. The same
1: problem here in the UK. I mean, this whole problem extends to drugs, prescription drugs, not only vaccinations. You know, the whole pharmaceutical industry is involved in this. Kind of blackmail of the taxpayer, and and you know it, 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 they're really very very difficult to control. We have the same problems trying to regulate which which drugs, which new drugs are safe, which new drugs should actually be used by the national health because we have a national health, you see, which you don't have yet. Um, but uh, but you see, they, they will just you know use. Patients' groups and various kinds of pressures to say you are not actually, you know, uh, getting care for the patient, and you know if something goes wrong, yes, you know the patient can actually say, well, you know I'm not getting the care I I I need because you didn't give me the drug, and you know the. Government regulators could be in trouble then. You see it, it, the, the, something's got to be done. I think the pharmaceutical industry is in for a shakeup. Uh, uh, and I think there's got to be some will somewhere to do it.
0: Well, we have the will. yes, but with everything you have to have uh, you have to have policymakers on your side. Yes. And the very first thing that anyone in power does in any industry, you see who you have to align yourself with in whatever way you have to. You have to find a way of finding a, an ally. You can do that. If politicians, you can support them financially. You can hold fundraisers. And there's so many loopholes that there's virtually nothing that can't be done to buy an election. And then, uh, then you have access. And as long as you have access to people, then that gives you enormous power. So as long as you don't have access, I don't have access then well, we don't then have we access to policymakers. Uh,
1: through legislation, oh, one, one thing, well, some things that could be done, for example, you know, um, clinical trials that are uh, done, they are not required to disclose the full results, register the full results, and that's very bad. And um, if they've got data, you know, they've got to make it Uh, Public the the pharmaceutical companies have to make it public But at the moment it it doesn't seem to be the case. You know those are things That could be done to make the whole thing more, more transparent
0: Okay, do you have a website we can reach out to
1: yes It's the Institute of science in society website, and there's lots and lots of information over there so it's www. I-S for sugar, dot .UK.
0: I thank you very much for being with us today.
1: Thank you. A pleasure.
0: My guest, Dr. Mae Mae-Wan Ho, H-O, she is a biochemist, she is a biophysicist. She has authored some very important studies, including Genetic Engineering, Dream or Nightmare. Uh, she also, in her life as a scientist, was a major critic of the neo-Darwinian thought and genetic engineering philosophy. And uh, she is with the Institute of Science Society in London. And uh, she also has uh, an, is an editor of the cutting-edge magazine Science and Society.